0: Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving your word to us. We pray that you would continue to teach us today, help us to learn from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who were not here last week, I'll explain that we have come to the end of a study of what the Bible teaches about the church, what the church is, and how it's supposed to function. Um, after our lesson last week, I distributed a document that summarizes much of that teaching. I think most of you received that, but if you did not, there I think there's one printed copy on the back table, or I can email you a digital copy if you want that. Um, I asked you to uh, uh, give me any input you have before we finish this study. I want to uh, make sure we cover all the things that you're wondering about, so I asked if you had any questions about anything I said or anything perhaps I left out, or if there was anything about the church you wanted me to comment on before we move on. I did get uh, questions from a couple of you, Uh, I thought before I start answering them, I would ask if there's anyone you maybe had something you wanted to say or ask about and you just didn't get around to do that, um, you're welcome to ask that question right now. If there's anything, I can take questions today in person. If not, uh, you are, if there's anything else uh, you do want me to address, um, I don't think I'll have time to finish everything today, so between now and next week, let me know, and we can hopefully pick that up. One of the questions that I got was about something I discussed last week. Uh, we were in some of John's writings last week. And the question was about uh, the first few chapters of Revelation. The book of Revelation is addressed to a group of seven churches. And Jesus is speaking to John. And he uses this phrase, the angels of the seven churches. So chapter 1, verse 20, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Then the next verse, the beginning of chapter 2, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, and then there's a message to Ephesus, and then so on through the seven churches. This word angel we are used to thinking of uh, in reference to the spiritual beings that uh, God sends uh, throughout the scriptures to. minister in various ways to his people. But the word angel doesn't actually mean a heavenly being. That's how we use it. But the word itself, it's an English form of a Greek word that means a messenger. So that's what the word angel means. It means messenger. And actually, if we were to look in the Old Testament, we would see that the Hebrew word that's equivalent to Uh, The Greek word angel also has the same meaning, a messenger. So though the word is usually used for non-human messengers, it can also be used for human messengers. And there are a handful of examples like that in the New Testament. It's clear that in these chapters of Revelation, uh, Jesus is talking about a human messenger. This person is a member of the church. And it is pretty nearly certain that the, the people Jesus has in mind here are the pastors of each of these churches. There's, um, he doesn't identify or describe who these angels are, but there's really no one else it could be. Uh, he's obviously referring to the pastors of those churches. This is the only place in the scriptures that this word is used for uh, someone in the pastoral office. Uh, the other places where it's used for a human messenger are not talking about uh, the, the same situation. So this is a unique usage in Revelation. And the question that one of you asked was, why does Jesus use this word here? That's a good question to ask when you're studying the Bible. I wonder, why why did the Lord choose the words he chose instead of using other words? We can't always up with an answer but looking for the answer often tells us something about the message of that scripture so i I have two suggestions to make in response to that question why did Jesus speak of these seven men and uh, we can extend it to pastors in any churches why does he call them angels the first part of my answer is Comparing that term to the other words that we could use. Um, There are four other words used for this particular office, this function in the church. Uh, We have looked at all of these. One is elder, the elder or elders of a church. Uh, The second is overseer or bishop. Those are the same term. And then two terms that Paul uses together, pastor and teacher. If you think of those four words, elder, overseer, pastor, teacher. And then think of this word that we find in Revelation, angel or messenger. What do those other four words have in common that is different, or that angel, that is not true of the word angel or messenger. What is distinct about the word messenger in comparison to those other four? Can you think of anything? Purpose. Purpose.
1: A messenger has a
0: message. That's true, a messenger has a message, but so does a teacher.
1: They do. They do.
0: Pastor
1: teacher which one was it? Pastor teacher. Overseer. Overseer. They would be a human if they would be a people. So it's mean they would be a pastor as
0: a person. Well we're talking about the same person. There's different words for the same person. For forget about the, the angels you're used to thinking of. Just think about the meaning of the word itself. Messenger. Yeah, we're not talking about those angels right now. Just, just oh, the human angels. Yeah, they're all ministers. The pastor one is a minister. The
1: is they're all yeah. ambassadors. You make this really hard. They
0: are, but that's... A, maybe we need to pull out a dictionary and show you how to use it. <laughs> okay. Uh, these first four words, elder, pastor, overseer, and teacher... All place that man who holds that office primarily in relation to the people that he is serving. You were going to say that, okay? (laughs) Great. (laughs) Excuse me. They
1: have a position.
0: They have a position. So does a messenger. (laughs) But the first four words, the reference of those words, is primarily with. The people who are the other people who are in the church um, an elder is um, the word itself means someone who is older in age than the others, but in this context it may not so much be about age as about position of leadership. A pastor is a shepherd, someone who takes care of sheep um, and overseer he's got a responsibility over those people a teacher he's teaching those people but a messenger. It does give him a relationship to the people who receive his message, but the primary reference with a messenger is the source of the message. A messenger was sent by someone else. Uh, the other four, um, we, we know from the scriptures that God is the one who has given these people to the church. But if you just take the meanings of the words, those other four words could just have arisen in the community themselves. They don't come from outside. But a messenger has to come from somewhere. A messenger is sent from outside. So if Jesus speaks to these pastors as being messengers, he's putting them in direct relationship to himself. The pastor of the church at Ephesus or at Smyrna, or at those others of the churches that John was writing to, each one of them is a messenger from God. That's true of every pastor and teacher in a church. He is a messenger from God. He doesn't hear the voice of God in the same way a prophet would, but he does have a message from the scriptures that he is responsible for bringing and teaching to the people in his church. That is a very solemn responsibility. And if you read through the second and third uh, chapters of this book, we referred to them a little bit last week, you can see perhaps why Jesus would emphasize their status as messenger. Some of those men were not faithful at communicating that message. Uh, You can see that from the way that he condemns what was going on in some of those churches. So that's one part of my answer that uh, Jesus wants to highlight their relationship to him and their special responsibility as having a message from him. The second part of the answer is uh, the rest of the book of Revelation. If you read through Revelation, there is a lot of angelic activity. And here in the first few chapters, angel means A human messenger, but through the rest of the book, it means what we usually think of when we think of angels those spiritual messengers that come from God. They uh, come with messages from Him, they administer His justice in the world, they protect the saints. And it may be that because of that activity of those angels in the rest of the prophecy, Jesus wants his human messengers in the churches to see their work in connection to the work that is done by the spiritual messengers from heaven uh, the work of a pastor is not identical to the work the ministry of an angel as we usually think of angels but both of them are servants of the lord both of them are serving the lord's people and both of them have responsibilities to do as part of God's plan. And perhaps the Lord wants to make sure that pastors and churches realize that what they're doing isn't just a unique, uh, isolated, being pastor of this one church, it's actually part of everything that the Lord is doing with all of his servants, including the angels. So that's how I would answer that question. Why does the Lord use this word angel in this context? Are there any follow-up questions about that or anything else you've been wondering about, perhaps about pastoral ministry that I should address? All right. And you can go home and find your dictionary and pull it off the shelf and make use of it. I have a bunch of dictionaries right next to my desk, and I use them all the time. They're very helpful. Um, uh, Another question I was asked was a question about baptism. You will recall that when I spoke about baptism, I pointed out that baptism isn't something that the church does. It's not something that requires the presence of the church. It's not even something that requires the authority of the church. But it is appropriate for us to think about baptism in connection with the church because uh, every member of the church has been baptized and everyone who is baptized, if if the baptism really means anything, uh, it brings uh, that person into the church. The question that was asked was based on an observation. There are people who are baptized as Christians, but then who turn away from the Lord afterwards. Uh, we uh, We all know people like that. There have been people who have been in this church who have been baptized and then who walk away and are no longer with us or no longer with the Lord. That shouldn't surprise us because we know that baptism, the act of washing someone in water ceremonially, does not save anyone. It is a symbol of a spiritual change that occurs in a person's heart. So the fact that someone has been put into water um, in the name of God and Uh, confessing uh, the gospel of Christ does not ensure that that person really will be saved. So it it does happen sometimes that such people would fall away. But the question that I was asked was, um, could we perhaps reduce the incidence of apostasy like that if we waited longer before baptizing people? This is not a novel idea. If you go back to uh, maybe the early 4th century, or possibly, possibly as early as the 2nd century, you find that some of the Christian churches had a special class for new converts. Uh, when they came to Christ, they would be given specific instruction about the faith, Um, And they would be observed to see whether their lives uh, match their uh, profession. And then um, probably just once in the year around Easter or sometime like that, those who were judged to be ready for baptism would be baptized and received as full members of the church. And then they would be able to participate in the Lord's Supper. So this is not a new concept that there might be a waiting period between someone's initial profession of faith in Christ and actually baptizing that person to make sure that those people really do understand the gospel and are really willing to commit to belief. And the thought was that this perhaps would uh, can't eliminate uh, people being baptized and then turning away from the faith, but it might uh, make it less common. I am not aware of any churches today that do anything like that, but I'm sure they probably exist. Uh, all the churches that I'm familiar with just, um, they require that there be a credible profession of faith on the part of the person being baptized, but there's no formal uh, instruction or no lengthy preparation period required. But very probably there are churches like that somewhere. So what do you think about that? Would that be a good idea? Should we baptize people as soon as they uh, say that they have come to faith in Christ? Or should we wait so many months or a year or just whatever time we decide to wait? What does the scripture teach about this? I'm not going to read these passages, but I'm going to refer to some events that hopefully you're familiar with. Think about those thousands of people who came to Christ on the day of Pentecost after Peter's teaching. Or the people in Samaria who came to Christ when Philip preached to them. Or the man who was returning to his home in Ethiopia that Philip also spoke to. Or Cornelius and his household, who came to faith uh, through the preaching of Peter. Or the example of Saul, whom we know better as Paul. What is common about all of those people with respect to their baptism? It happened pretty quick. It, pretty quick. it was pretty much immediately. In the case of Saul, I think there. There was a delay of three days or something like that. But uh, the, in some of them, for sure, um, that man that Philip met in the chariot, it was no more than hours. may not even have been a full hour that Philip, between his hearing the gospel and being baptized. Uh, same with Cornelius, that was right away. Uh, no time of delay at all. So the scriptural pattern is that no, we should not have any time of waiting for baptism. In fact, uh, it's probably more likely that Christians wait too long to be baptized than that they uh, do it too quickly. That doesn't mean that there should not be careful instruction of those who have recently come to Christ. But uh, with reference to baptism, uh, baptism in the New Testament immediately follows faith really without any waiting at all. Now those examples I just gave you, most of them are of people who knew at least part of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Even in the case of Cornelius, who was not a Jew, he was somewhat familiar with uh, the truth of the Old Testament. But baptism immediately following conversion also is seen with reference to someone who knew nothing at all about the truth. If we go to the 16th chapter of Acts, there's the keeper of the prison who is converted. And verse 33 says, He was baptized, he and all his, straightway. There's this immediate baptism. Here's a man who had never heard the scriptures, probably knew next to nothing about the Jewish religion. There was not a synagogue in Philippi. So anything he knew about the Jews would have been very distorted. Had very likely not heard the name of Jesus before that night. And yet he is immediately baptized. And I can imagine what happens the next day. Paul and Silas go to Lydia and the other believers there and uh, take their leave of them and say, Oh, by the way, we baptized a whole household last night. They're your responsibility now. There's no preparation time at all, just immediate baptism. There is one example of someone who was baptized and then uh, it was clear that that person was not a believer. Acts 8 13, this is in Samaria, Simon himself believed also and when he was baptized he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. But then, verse 21, Peter says to him, thy heart is not right in the sight of God, repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So this man expressed some kind of faith. He was baptized, but he apparently was not actually born again. And Peter addresses that problem with him, but Peter does not rebuke Philip for having baptized that man. That baptism was um, what should follow immediately upon belief. We can't see a person's heart, Uh, But if, as far as we can tell, a person really does believe in Christ, then the scriptural example is that baptism should happen right away. Any further questions about that or anything else about baptism?
1: Mm-hmm. Needs to be asked, what do you know concerning Christ? That he's truly the Son of God and that he died in the place on the cross for their sins? And have they surrendered to him?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Those are the questions that need to be asked.
0: Yes, there needs to be a real faith, which means there has to have been a hearing of the gospel and a comprehension of the gospel. Um there does not have to be a full understanding of Christian truth, but there does need to be that essential faith and uh, commitment to the Lord. Yes?
1: Mm-hmm. How do you handle, um, so, the, uh, I run across this quite a bit, uh, people who have professed Christ who have been baptized when they were younger, they were teenagers, and they use that as, as an example of them knowing the Lord, um, but everything else about their lives tells you the complete opposite. And not that, you know, it's our job to judge that particularly, like how a person lives, but but there is there is an indicator when obviously people who just walk away from the Lord, they've been baptized, and, and many times they use that as an example. That yes, they're Christians because I was baptized. And I think uh, along the lines of the Catholic Church, I think um, when well you hear that in, that in that setting quite a bit, where, well, I'm Catholic because I was baptized. So I'm just wondering, like, it, you know, the scripture doesn't really speak to that, I guess. Um, but sometimes I wonder if these people weren't maybe mature enough, they were too young, they did it because of maybe pressure or whatever. I'm not sure, right, you know,
0: and the answer to that question are the verses I just read from Acts 8, which show that you can be baptized and still be on your way to hell. Uh, there's no magic about water that does anything to a person's spiritual state. So if you encounter people like that, that's, that's the best thing to point them to. Baptism cannot save a person. It never has saved a person. It never will save a person
2: sometimes people go through a process in their own lives or whatever where they get baptized and they don't. And for whatever reason, they get <laughs> baptized right and later in their Christian walk or whatever. The Lord brings them along and then they come to understand more what baptism is about. They may desire to be baptized. There's nothing inherently wrong for them to be baptized twice since as we say really, the process is not what saves them. The heart conditions, their heart conditions with the
0: Lord. Yes, it, it may, it may be that there are people who have been baptized without understanding what it really means. Um, and that may point to the fact that um, the church they were in didn't teach them very well or that maybe the Lord really hadn't worked in their hearts yet at that point. Maybe there was pressure among friends or whatever to be baptized. There could be any number of reasons to be baptized. Um, And if so if someone, like the example you mentioned, uh, really comes to true faith later in life, um, I think that would be something to work through on an individual basis. But yes, it probably, in some cases at least, for sure would be appropriate to uh, baptize that person upon a true confession of faith if the, the first baptism wasn't really um, a result of faith in that person's heart.
2: need to, as a Christian, there need to walk in obedience to Christ, whatever that might be. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so, like, uh, that's all I'm saying. It's like, I don't think that it's our job as a church or as members of a church or as as just co-Christian partners to judge somebody's heart or whatever as to what they've done. I just would want to encourage them in doing right. Today, because we can't change yesterday. Mm-hmm. The good thing is, is
0: that they come to a point of knowing the need to be baptized now, to follow in that. Mm-hmm. Yes, we all come to our understanding of the truth in different ways, and um, some people come to understand something sooner than others do. And when you're dealing with people who clearly are not born again, which sometimes happens, Um, but they identify themselves as Christians because of a decision they made at some time in their life. They don't really care about living for the Lord now. Um, Then with people like that, you, you just need to bring them back to the gospel. It's not baptism that saves you, it's not even your identifying yourself as a Christian that saves you, it's the work of Christ, and have you really laid hold of that work in your heart? If so, then it's going to affect the way you think about everything and the way you live. So, it's a matter of, in... uh, the example of Mrs. Cruz is talking about someone who perhaps has just taken longer to come to uh, true faith and assurance of the gospel, and the example of Mr. Van Heck talking about is someone who probably hasn't come to that yet. Um, but whatever it is, the gospel is the same for all of us, and we all need to uh, be come to faith in the same way. Another question that was asked was um, – got to think of how much time I have left. I think I can do this. Uh, I think this was uh, a two-part question, really. It was uh, given to me verbally rather than in writing, so uh, we didn't go into a lot of detail. But um, the question uh, – I think the first part of the question was uh, about the church's involvement in its community – Uh, Specifically, I think, thinking about community outside the church. How should we as a church participate in the community that we live in? And the second part of this question is, uh, how should a church uh, or shouldn't a church be um, working in fellowship with other Christian churches rather than being on its own? I think isolation was the, the word that was used in that context? Uh, To answer the first part of that question, I would say that the ministry of the church to the world is witnessing to Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel, and calling people to faith and repentance. That is the only ministry that the church has been given to the world. Exactly how it will be conducted depends on uh, the resources that a church has, the kind of society that the church is living in. Uh, it will look different for every church, but uh, the purpose is the same. that The church needs to preach the gospel and call people to faith. Any other involvement in the community that is not part of that is... The church getting outside what God has given it to do. The church has no place in politics as a direct actor. Certainly teaching in the church should teach Christian people how they might engage in politics. And individual Christians can, if they know what they're doing, which isn't always the case, Uh, can be active politically, but the church itself is not a political entity and should not act as such. Social work, uh, providing for people's needs of food or clothing or medicine or anything else, is not part of the church's work. Uh, There are circumstances in which the church can make use of such activities, to allow for a better preaching of the gospel. But if those activities on their own become the main thing, if we decide we're going to feed everyone in our community who is in need of an extra meal, then if that just we just do that because we want to do it, then probably the church is going to be pulled aside from what it really is supposed to do. Um, There is certainly opportunity for things like that. We have made use of that in the past in our church. I have some friends right now who are in the Middle East uh, conducting a clinic as a means of preaching the gospel to people this week and next week. But any activities like that should be done only if they aid in the preaching of the gospel. And if the extra activities take over from the preaching of the gospel, then the church has gone wrong. Um, of course, there's plenty of opportunity for individual Christians, rather than the church as a whole, to uh, meet the needs of those around them. Uh, so, uh, to answer that question, I say, yes, the church needs to be involved in its community, but uh, community involvement needs to be subordinate to and part of the preaching of the gospel. The second part of that question about uh, church fellowship with other churches. Um, We don't have much opportunity for that in our church uh, because there are not other churches in our immediate area whose belief in the scriptures is such that we could really participate in them in any formal way. We many of us have friends in other local churches, but the teaching and practice of their churches is such that it wouldn't be possible for our church to participate directly with those churches. If you are, um, if you don't understand that concept, then I might recommend uh, the book that I mentioned by Mark Stedwell, uh, Set Apart. I think it's currently out of the library, but um, certainly you can, I recommend that everyone should read uh, that book. But even in a community where there are many Bible-believing churches, should those churches work together? I spent most of 12 years in a place that was full of churches. There were a lot of bad churches there, but there were also very many good churches. But even in a community like that, where you have a hundred or more churches that are faithfully serving the Lord and preaching the gospel, there was very little organized involvement of one church with others. A lot of personal fellowship, but as far as churches doing things together, it almost never happened. And I don't think that's a bad thing, because... In the Lord's plan, each local congregation is an organic whole. We saw from 1 Corinthians 12, um, Paul's use of the second and first person pronouns there, that the universal church throughout the whole world is the body of Christ. The local church in each place is the body of Christ. So each local church should be able to function on its own, as an active body of Christ. And the New Testament does teach that there can be relationships between churches. Uh, There are examples in the New Testament of churches helping another church that's in need. Uh, There are examples of churches consulting with one another, of Christians who travel from one place to another, fellowshipping with churches in those other places. Um, I hope you do that whenever you travel away from here. There are also examples of uh, churches supporting missionaries who've been sent out from other churches. So these are all scriptural means of uh, interchurch church fellowship, um, and we should make use of them when we can. We had our business meeting recently and talked about Uh, possibly resurrecting the annual picnic we used to have with other churches on the island. I uh, certainly hope we can be able to do that. But when a church is functioning the way it's supposed to, there's really not a lot of room for organized activities with other churches. Um, There should be fellowship on a personal level and even on a church level when it's possible. But I wonder if some of us sometimes feel like our church is alone and like we would benefit from more interaction with other churches. I wonder if instead of looking for more involvement with other churches, it would be better to examine ourselves say, Am I actually fulfilling? My God-given part as a member of this body, because if you are, there may not be a whole lot of time left over to think about things beyond the local church. That was probably a longer answer than it needed to be, but um, basically what I am saying is a church, with reference to unbelievers, a church does need to look beyond itself to speak the truth to them. With reference to other churches, we should fellowship with them when we can and uh, make the most of opportunities we have to do that, but we shouldn't uh, depend on fellowship with other churches in order to do what the Lord wants us to do because he has called each body to function as a body. Um, I think we'll stop with that. If you have any questions about that concept or anything else that comes up, uh, mention them to me afterwards or any time during this week. There was one other question I was asked, and I'll uh, with that as well as anything else you bring to me next Sunday, and then that will probably be our concluding Sunday to this series. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel that you have given us, we thank you for the eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ our savior we pray that you would strengthen our faith in him and that you would give us uh, give us hearts that desire to communicate that faith to others so that they can come and share it we pray your blessing on our witness this afternoon in the seniors village that your word would speak to the hearts of people there we Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.